Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Learner's Corner podcast. My name is Caleb Mason, and I'm so excited that you've decided to spend part of your day here with me. And I have a great guest for you today. Today, I am talking with Sarah Anderson, and she is someone that I've been looking forward to talking to for uh, for a long time. She has recently released her brand new book called The Space Between Us, How Jesus Teaches Us to Live Together When Politics and Religion Pull Us Apart. And just a little bit about Sarah, that she is a native of the greater Washington, D.C. area and a current resident of the Bible Belt. She has spent her entire life learning to live in the tension both politics and religion create and striving to learn how to best navigate the complicated issues and emotional conversations around these uh, weightier topics. And one of the things uh, that I think she offers a very uh, unique perspective as well is that her dad actually ran uh, for president before. Her dad is Gary Bauer. And so we talk with her a little bit about that as well. We're going to get into that conversation uh here in just a second. But before that, I do want to let you know that the music that you're listening to is brought to you by my good friend, Sam Massey. If you have any audio or video needs, be sure to hit him up. His Instagram handle is at Sam Massey 77. And just thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the podcast. You know, today or not today, we want what well, is today, but every day we want to create a community where it's a safe place to have a dangerous conversation. What I mean by a dangerous conversation is the conversations that you're afraid to have with other people because you're afraid of their reaction to it. Or maybe you're afraid because it might lead to a disagreement as well. And we want to create the type of place to where we can have those conversations whenever and wherever as well. You know, because here on the Learner's Corner, we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, from anything and from everything. And I don't know if there's probably a better example of uh, of why we created the this podcast than the conversation we're going to have today with Sarah, because she just, just does such a fantastic job of just navigating this tension that we're talking about. And so without any further wait, here is my conversation with Sarah Anderson. Well, Sarah, I'm so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today to talk about your brand new book, which yeah. uh, at the time we're recording this is launch day. That's right. Or, Big day. And your book is called The Space Between Us. And the subtitle is How Jesus Teaches Us to Live Together When Politics and Religion Pull Us Apart. Yeah. And any anytime that I talk with somebody and they've created a book or created a piece of art or something like that, I absolutely love to hear what was what was the moment, what was the series of things that just made yeah. you decide, hey, I, I got to take what I'm learning and share it with the world. Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, I started writing it probably about five years ago um, before the 2016 election when things seemed like they were getting um, more divisive and more heated than ever. And kind of thought, I, I felt like I missed the window a little bit. And then I thought, well, this will probably die down. This won't, you know, this kind of tension we're feeling in the political world won't last forever. And then it didn't, it did not die down at all. And, um, I just started to notice, um, my kids were getting older. So that was about five years ago. And now I have an eight-year-old and a, and a 10-year-old. And I thought they're old enough to start paying attention to mm. the way we're talking about politics and the way we're talking about politicians involved. And, um, I just thought if I'm not part of a solution for this, that I'm complicit in the problem. And I just didn't want to think that this was the norm that we would be passing on to the generation below us, specifically my kids as they're kind of watching all of this unfold. So I think that kind of put it in my mind that I, I want to be part of trying to fix it. And that's, um, not in an arrogant way, but in, I don't want to feel like, um, I had an opportunity to say something and I missed it. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel like I was part of the problem. So just started writing and um, a book was born and, you know, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> that's how it happens. Yep. No, that's, that's so powerful. And um, yeah, what, like, I'm just, I'm just trying to think through of there's, there's a lot of people who, you know, they see it and yet they've mm -hmm. decided to do, to do nothing as well. Yeah. Can you just say more about yeah. like just choosing 
choosing to be a part of the solution and then just talking about the situation and complaining about the problem. Yeah. Well, I will say um, part of what the book is about is my personal experience and the family I came from. So Mm -hmm. I grew up just outside Washington, D.C. My um, parents were both very involved in politics before we were born, before they were married. They met working at the Republican National Committee. So politics has always kind of been in my blood. Um, And then in my senior year of high school in 1999, my dad ran for president for the Republican nomination. Um, So we've always been very much a part of uh, that world. And then I went into ministry myself, both my brother and my sister went into politics and we just kind of discovered, you know, kind of in a funny way that we both, we all went into areas that were the most emotionally divisive topics in the world. And then we realized, wait, as we got older and kind of experienced different things, we weren't always leaning on the same page when it came to political issues or religious issues. And so I felt like our family kind of, um, had a head start in some ways in figuring out how to talk about these more divisive issues because we couldn't avoid talking about it. A lot of families may not agree, but they can just say, we're not going to talk about that at the Thanksgiving dinner table and it's fine. But because it's been so much a part of where we're from and what we all do for a living, we did not have the luxury of avoiding the conversation. And so what, what feels like, um, a more recent development with how divisive things have become in the past, you know, four or five years has been something our family has been navigating for a while. And I felt like we haven't gotten it right all the time by any stretch of the imagination. Like there are definitely heated conversations that we get into, but I thought we have figured out a way for the most part and how to respect each other um, and disagree with each other at times and just to treat each other honorably in the conversation. And so I just thought, even if we're not experts in this, you know, we, I think we owe it to one another um, and to culture at large to kind of contribute what we have learned from it. Um, Not from, again, not from a posture of like, we're an expert in this, but Mm -hmm. this is kind of our story and failing forward in some ways and figuring it out. Yeah. I I would love to ask you, um, how, how have you gone about managing the tension between, um, between like wanting to represent like your, your parents while and also, and also being yourself, because that's something yeah. that I can relate to because yeah. not to, not to the level of my dad running for president, but my yeah. dad is, you know, the pastor of a, of a large church that I work yeah. at and I navigate yeah, right. that tension too. And so I'm more yeah. asking for, Hey, how have you learned to just navigate that tension? Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I would say not well all of the time, <laughs> but I think all of us do when it comes to family, you know, family is just so layered. There's so many, it's not just having a disagreement about politics. When we're talking to our parents, our siblings, there's, there's like years of relational stuff to, that we're kind of waiting through to, to do this well. So I think we need to give each other a lot of grace when it comes to having these kinds of conversations, because there's just always more that's being talked about or that's not being talked about. That's part of the conversation. Um, so I would say the thing that I think my family has done really well, I don't know if we did it on purpose or not, but just happened into, um, is we, we are trying really hard not to make each other into our own image. So we're not going into a conversation thinking, I want you to think like I do by the end of this conversation, but there is more of a curiosity and, you know, why do you feel so strongly about this? What experiences have you had that have led to feeling this way? So for my parents, it comes from just being more curious about their upbringing and the things that shape the views that they've had. And also understanding, because I think the tension that we tend to feel is probably more between our parents' generation and then my generation. Um, and understanding that when it comes to talking to our parents, we're talking to people who are in their 60s or 70s. And if they've thought this way for a lifetime, like that's a lot of years of thinking um, that way and understanding that changing your mind is just more difficult the older you get. And that's not a bad thing. That's that's just a thing thing. It's just is what is true. And so what might feel like not as big a deal to us in our 20s, 30s, or 40s is a much bigger deal in our parents. And so giving them the grace and saying, you know, I'm not expecting you to change an entire lifetime of thinking because of what I feel like I just came across in my 30s. And, you know, I'm here to enlighten you. Um, I think that's part of it. I think it's also my parents um, do not 
see me as having um, caved to culture for thinking what I do. And I don't see them as less evolved for thinking the way that they do. I think there's just a real grace in saying, you know, we could buy into a narrative about why you think the way that you do, but instead let's lean into the humanity of the other person. I think that allows us to just see each other as more than just the positions we represent. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what, what helps you do that? <laughs> <laughs> we always try to rely on the things that, that we share in common. So we try to remember, you know, um, I, I, I didn't put this in the book, but I, I posted this several days ago, but we all love Jerry Seinfeld. We love the Seinfeld show. We, we went to New York as a family several years ago and took in, um, you know, him doing stand up one night and we laugh at the same things. We, we like the same kinds of movies. We, there are so many things that we share in common that keep us tied to each other that are bigger than our political views. And so, um, we love just, we love to laugh in general. So anything that can lighten the conversation, lighten the mood by um, bringing a certain levity to it, I think really helps. Um, So we're always trying to find the things that are tying us together instead of the things that are tearing us apart. And there are definitely things that it's hard to do that. But if we can look for the lowest common denominator in our um, and what keeps us connected as family and remember that that's always true for us, regardless of how we vote on election day or how we practice our faith, the ties that bind are still there and they still matter and they're not going to go anywhere. And just really trying to hold tightly to that. Yeah. What are some of the things that maybe you learned while your dad was running for president that like still shape you today? Yeah. Yeah. So um, it was kind of an interesting stage of life to be my senior year of high school. My sister had just graduated from college. So she was working for my dad's campaign. My brother was in middle school. So he was like, this is the coolest thing ever to be part of a presidential campaign. And I was kind of the only one in the family that felt a little bit more wary about the whole process. Um, I think part of that's my wiring. I don't love how divisive politics is. Um, And it was that experience that kind of... um, solidified for me that this was not the area I wanted to go into (laughs) long-term. So I feel like what I learned, um, you know, in in probably a a more personal and painful way in some ways, um, was how little control you have over the the narrative that's being told about you and your family. Mm -hmm. Um, you, you can't be captured in a soundbite or in a quote, um, about, your positions on any given thing. And I just remember thinking how frustrating it was that my dad was being portrayed a certain way on the screen, on, on the news or, you know, in an internet article or a newspaper article. And I just thought there's so much more to him than what you're seeing in this article. And I just thought, well, if that's how I feel with my dad, how does every major political player feel that there's only so much we can learn from the news story and only so much the media is going to tell us, not because the, the media is out to get us, but just because that's the nature of a public figure. There's just so much you can know. And so I just remember thinking, I don't, I don't ever want to forget what it felt like that, um, to feel that your story is a little bit out of control, out of your control when your family is part of the public eye. And to know that every person that's being portrayed, politicians, any kind of celebrity really, that they go home to a family at night, that they are somebody's son and daughter, that they're a parent of somebody, that there are so many intricacies about a person that we could never know and will never know um, based on what's represented on a screen. And so anytime that I can um, remember that, there's a three-dimensional person and not just this two-dimensional figure on a screen is helpful. And I, and I forget sometimes it's so easy, especially now in the age of, you know, social media to read a tweet and to be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, you know, it just go off. But to know there's so much more that makes a person. And so trying to remember that I think is wise, but very difficult for all mm-hmm. of us to do. What helped, what helped you handle that as like just being your dad's daughter? And everything yeah. because you like it's it's hard to shield yourself from the criticism yeah. because at some point it's getting through and sometimes it just blindsides you. Yes. Well, I think we were lucky because it was before the age of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all that. I think it's much more challenging now. You can't mm-hmm. really be shielded from anything <laughs> at this point. But yeah, I mean, I I remember um there was a lot of animosity directed towards my family and my dad in particular, and that it really scared me. And I think in a lot of ways, it um, 
I think it kind of reinforced this us versus them mentality that I had because I only ever saw the really vocal, outspoken other side. And it, I, I had a hard time humanizing the people that thought differently than us because I only saw these people who were saying really harmful things about our family. Um, and so I think it reinforced like, gosh, we're, the, we're on the good side and this is the bad side because this is how bad they're behaving towards us. Um, so I think it, it was not helpful in that way, seeing that side of, um, you know, the other, the other side and how they treated mm-hmm. my dad. But, um, I think we just kind of rallied as a family in a lot of ways. We started to realize there aren't very many people who have had the experience that we've had and we have to have each other's back in this. Like nobody is going to necessarily understand what it felt like to be in this position. And so we can't turn on each other. We need to kind of like lock arms, link arms and, and face this together, face the world together and really kind of have that mentality of us against the world. Like, you know, nobody else may understand it, but at the end of the day, we're all, we're all family and we've got each other's backs. And, um, there's just something really kind of meaningful in that. Yeah. What, what else have you learned from, you know, you mentioned, uh, not only your your dad running for president, but your siblings are involved in politics as well too. What are some of the things that you've learned from just being like around like the the political sphere or scene or whatever you want to call it that, that maybe most people don't think about or don't realize because they're just not connected to that scene? Yeah. Um, I, I, it's a lot, probably what my dad, what I learned, my dad was running for president. These are humans, you know, I just, I, my dad, my brother, you know, very involved, um, in the political scene and to hear him and who he works for, to hear the stories that he tells, it's kind of like, oh, they have a bad day. Like every elected officials have a bad day. Like they're just, you know, they were more emotional or moody or like whatever it is that these are not um, just figureheads, right? Like we only tend to see them as a representative for a certain party or um, someone who's advocating for a certain political position. And we forget like, oh my goodness, these are flesh and blood people who maybe didn't get enough sleep last night or maybe needed another cup of coffee or it's just things like that, that I, I think we forget that it's just it's not a well-oiled machine. The political process, these political figureheads are not robots. These are actual humans. And I just think anytime we can get a glimpse into that real world person, um, I think it's just really helpful, you know, figuring out like what their kids are like or what their kids do for a living or for fun, or even realizing that sometimes, you know, not all their family agrees with what they think either. And that, and and everyone's navigating, you know, these tensions that it's not just, um, it's not easy for anybody. Yeah. Nobody. On, on another note, another thing that you talk about a lot, uh, in the book too, is you talk about having healthy dialogue with people who disagree with you as well, whether that be politically or even in matters of religion and everything. What, What are some things that you've learned that are like, Hey, if you're going to talk with somebody who you disagree with, Mm-hmm. Like keep these things in mind. Yeah. Um, some of what I, you know, kind of mentioned with my family earlier, a sense of the lowest common denominator of things mm-hmm. that you have in common with this person. Even if that is, you know, if it's a Republican Democrat thing or it's a religion thing, being able to say, we are all coming from a place of what we want to make our country a better place. We mm-hmm. disagree fundamentally on what that might look like, but we have the same motivation. Like, I think we need to get rid of this idea that the other side is out to destroy us, wh- whatever that is, you know, whether that's in religion or politics, we, if we can start by saying, listen, I don't agree with how you think we should go about it. I don't think our, you know, taxpayer dollars should be used in this way or that way, but we want what's best for the country. We think it looks really different though. But if, as mm-hmm. soon as I understand, oh, you have the same goal as me. Now you're not a bad person. You are a good person that's going about it in a different way. So anytime that we're trying to find the lowest common denominator, whatever that is, and really starting from there, making that your foundational building block, you know, like a Jenga tower, make that your strongest block. Um, I think it starts with having a posture of curiosity towards people. Um, I think as soon as we come in thinking we've got it figured out, we are more evolved, more educated, um, more in tune, more, you know, whatever it is. We're, if we're more of anything than the other person, then we have the wrong posture. We need to be going at it with a very level playing field. Anything that treats the other person as less than um, is not helpful. But if we're coming at it with a posture of help me understand 
how you see, why you see things that way. What was your personal experience that led you there? Um, but I just, anytime we're trying to correct or change someone's mind, first of all, that's out of our control. Like we have zero control over changing anybody's mind and that's above our pay grade. So we should stop trying to do that. But if we approach a, a dialogue with the intention of understanding and being more compassionate, then we can really measure success, what success looks like in that conversation. Success can't be changing the other person's mind mm-hmm. because we'll lose every time. We can't, we can't actually control it. But going into a conversation saying, I want to understand you better, even if you don't change your mind and I don't change mine, at least I see you more as a person, see you more as a human. I think that's really helpful. Um, and I think there's also, you know, our posture kind of along those same lines. Um, when we're not trying to change someone's position, but we're we're humble in what we think and we believe. Um, I think that kind of goes into if we're always trying to keep a posture of learning, right? That it's I haven't gotten everything figured out. Help me learn what I might not understand. My experience can only teach me so much. So share your experience with me. And there's a humility in that that I think we've lost in our political dialogue and religious dialogue too, um, that kind of keeps us from being learners and seeing other people as teachers to us. Mm -hmm. What helps you uh, cultivate that posture of humility and curiosity? Because it's not natural. No, it's not. It's definitely not. I think it's continuing to be around people that I don't um, necessarily agree with. And not, I think creating echo chambers is probably what has got us here. And I think social media has been a big part of that, you know, um, probably even more so in COVID because we're not having a lot of face-to-face interactions. More of our lives have moved online and our online lives are dictated by algorithms that are out of our control and our responses to buttons that we're clicking that we are liking one thing or the other. And so we really can pick and choose what we listen to and and reinforce our our beliefs without even really realizing it. Um, We can find the news network that's going to support what we already think. And so I think anytime that we intentionally choose to expose ourselves to people who don't have the same lived experience we have because it's mm. a different culture they're coming from, they're a different race, they're a different socioeconomic group, they're a different part of the country, a different faith. All of those things are make us different. So exposing ourselves to people who have had a different experience is going to keep us humble and keep us from thinking our experience is the only true experience. So sometimes, you know, if there's like a major news story, my husband and I will switch back between Fox News and MSNBC just to see how they're both telling it because they're not the same. <laughs> you'd watch and you'd go, is, is, are they reporting on the same thing? Like, this is crazy. But it's helpful to see that there's an entire segment of the population that's only watching one of those news networks. And there's another segment of the population that's only watching the other one. And both of them feel like they're getting the quote unquote facts. So if I can expose myself to what they're hearing, what they're learning, then I can say, okay, there's one, there's more than one way to tell the story. And I need to be educated in how that story is being told to other people, even if it's not the way that I'm hearing it. And that is going to help us, I think, um, uh, you know, be more responsive to people who think differently than us, just exposure in that way. Can you talk more about like, what, what does it look like on day-to-day basis, week-to-week basis of like surrounding yourself with different voices. You talked about, you know, mm-hmm. Fox News and NBC. Yeah. What, what are what other ways does that look like for you of surrounding yourself with different voices? Yeah. Well, I think um, part of it, just a really easy, small thing to do is pick a social media channel. One that's going to be like, this is your happy place. You don't go there. You know what I mean? Like don't go to get there to get riled up. And th- But then have one that's literally, you are following people who you know believe differently than you do and who are going to push you when it comes to the things that you think. And I'm not saying they don't have to be um, annoying or aggressive about it. Pick thoughtful people, but pick people that are going to cause you to think and, and go there and see what it is that they're saying. So I, you know, on the days when I can, I go to Twitter <laughs> when I can emotionally handle it. And my feed is full of people that think differently than me than all kinds of things and just trying to get a better idea of what shaped their narratives. That's a very simple way to do it. But um, you know, if you're in small groups, I would say be intentional about having people that have had different experiences than you in your small group or um, you know, the schools that your kids are in you know, making sure that you're not isolating yourself from people who have had um, different experiences in that way. But anything that's just kind of, that makes you feel slightly uncomfortable, 
with the people you're around, I think is good. If we're not feeling a little uncomfortable and, and challenged, then I'm, I think we're probably stagnant and probably um, decaying to a degree. <laughs> we're not yeah. growing. Um, and so I think anytime that we feel slightly uncomfortable, that's probably a good step. So list yeah. podcasts that we listen to, you know, new social media feeds, all of that, I think is just a very easy thing we can do. It starts today. You know, we can do that right away. Yeah. Uh, I want to go back to kind of what we were talking about a few minutes ago yeah. of, of having healthy dialogue. What are, what are some signs or some gauges or something that help you know, okay, I'm getting this right. Like I'm doing, like I'm doing it right. Like I'm having yeah. a healthy dialogue about with people that I disagree with. What are some of the signs that I'm getting it right? What are some of the signs that I'm, I'm blowing it? I'm getting yeah. it completely <laughs> wrong. <laughs> that is such a good question. The, the signs that I'm blowing it are usually physical. Like I can feel myself getting hot. <laughs> I can feel like my uh, temperature rising, um, getting more flustered in how I respond. Um, and using statements let, that include the word always or never. These are the things that I'm kind of like, okay, this is no longer a dialogue. This is an argument or a debate that I'm trying to win. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if I know it's in a healthy place is when I am able to still laugh. If I can bring some levity to it and that doesn't feel offensive to me or the other person tries to bring levity and that's not like annoying. So I feel like if I, if I'm starting to take it so seriously that I can't laugh at a joke that's brought up, then I, then I've probably taken it too far. And not to say that, you know, not everything is, is a laughing matter. Not every, you know, there are really serious conversations we have, but when it comes to preserving the relational dignity that we have with each other, I think we need to find a way to not let those conversations set the tone. And and so honestly, it's like, it's the same thing I would think about when having an argument with my husband. If I'm like, if I need to like step away for a minute, I'm probably taking things too seriously. If I'm using always and never words, it's probably because I've, you know, gone off the rails a little bit. So Mm -hmm. stay sticking to the plot and the plot is dialogue, not debate. Um, So paying attention to like the physical reactions. If I start sweating a lot, I know I'm probably (laughs) getting heated. But, um, and, and thinking, you know, when my kids are around, is this, am I demonstrating dialogue in a way that I want my kids to mimic? Is this, is this something I would feel comfortable with them talking to like to each other or talking to me? If, if they're demonstrating the same kind of dialogue that I'm doing right now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Like how proud of that would I be if I saw these same tendencies coming from their mouths? We we talked about uh, this next question a little a little bit, yeah. but I just want to see if there's uh, if you have any other thoughts on it. What what helps you remain true to your convictions and yeah. the things like, hey, this is this is the position that I hold. This yeah. is the thing that I believe, while at the same time, like maintaining the relationship. Yeah. With the person, how do you handle that tension? Yeah. Well, I think part of the problem is we've treated everything um, like it's a hill to die on. And I think that's part of what's made things so complicated right now in the current political and and religious climate. Um, So one of the things I talk about in the book is kind of like this self-assessment, what we should do um, is, is labeling the differences between beliefs, convictions, and opinions. So beliefs are the things that, that those really are the hills to die on. These are the issues. These are the things that we are like, no, I don't think there's any room to give on this. It's not okay. I will not defend, you know, racism. Like that's not okay. Then you've got convictions. You're like, I feel really strongly about this, but I also know enough to know there are other people who've had different experiences and they've landed at a different place. So I will engage in a dialogue about this, but I understand that there's another way to see this. And opinions are kind of like, you know what? I'm not even sure I have the emotional energy. Like I think this, but I don't really know a lot about it. This is just kind of where I am right now. I could change tomorrow. But I think lately we've treated everything like a belief. And we've seen everything as an invitation to argue. So I think we need to be really careful, you know, when it comes to standing up for our convictions or I would, I would say beliefs are the things that we should really stand up for is deciding mm-hmm. what are the beliefs that are worth standing up for and what are the things that, okay, we're not going to see eye to eye on this and that's okay. Like, I'm not going to change this person's mind. They're not going to change my mind. So it's okay. Um, so I think the integrity piece comes in and knowing what those, how they're different what falls into each category. Um, but also deciding, you know, I think we've also sometimes started to feel that if we are friends with people or we, um, 
are in the presence of other people who think differently than us, that we're condoning what they think or that we're caving into culture. And I'm not sure that that's true. So I think we need to decide or realize that just being friends with someone who thinks differently than us is not caving in on our convictions. You know, I think, you know, I talk a little bit about this idea that Jesus hung out with, you know, some not so great people when it came to their track record. And he didn't worry about what that said about him and his reputation. He just cared that these people felt cared for and that he showed up for them and that he was there for them. And so I think we've got to take that same kind of posture, being friends with somebody whose behavior we do not approve of, whose voting record we do not approve of is not caving in our convictions. It's being a good human. So Mm -hmm. let's be good humans rather than worry about the positions that we hold. Yeah. What do you think draws us to wanting to make everything a belief? I don't know. That's a great question. I think, um, I think it requires less work of us mentally to, if, if we just decide there's a right way and a wrong way to see this and everything that we've landed on is the right way, then we don't really have to do any mental work to kind of figure out where somebody else is coming from. And that's just easier, right? I mean, it's, it's much harder to see somebody as being different than it is to see them as being wrong. To see someone as being wrong is like, yeah, that's okay. Then I don't have to treat you any better. But to see someone just being different, like that requires some mental gymnastics on my part to treat you with dignity in a, in a humane way, but to see, I don't, we don't think the same way. That's really hard to do. So I think it's just easier to treat every hill as a hill to die on um, than it is to see it differently. I think it asks more of us. I think it um, requires that we hold more loosely to things. I think that's scary for a lot of us to think that we have put a lot of thought and effort into this and we still might be wrong. I think that that's hard to do, but I think that that's a really healthy position to hold that, um, as a learner and not as someone who's, you know, figured this all out. Mm -hmm. What helps you determine like, this is, this is a belief worth holding on to versus something where it's like an opinion to where, Hey, I'm more, I'm more loose handed with this. Yeah. Um, I think it comes down to treatment of people as, you know, the fundamental thing, Mm -hmm. um, I think anything that causes me to disregard, uh, you know, any kind of policy legislation that causes me to think that that person that it's affecting um, is not, if it's not kind, if it's not beneficial, if it's not looking out for um, the more marginalized, the people who are um, who don't have everything going in their favor, um, if it's not helpful to them, then I think you know, that's definitely worth thinking about when it comes to our, our positions and our policies and that sort of thing. Um, but ultimately anything that allows me to see two sides of something, um, is really hard to put in a belief category. Cause I, I mm-hmm. think there's a lot of people that think things that even at, if at first glance, I'm like, that's wrong. There was an experience or a relationship that caused them to think that way. I don't think any of us have been have, are blindly holding on to political beliefs. Maybe some of us, but even if we are, it's because they were passed down to us and our parents or their parents had an experience that caused them to think that. So I think anytime that we start to lean into what's the experience or relationship that caused you to land on that, then I can better understand, even if I don't agree with you, I can understand where you're coming from and realizing that for a lot of us, um, the p- positions we disagree with from other people can be coming from a place of fear from them. And I think once we understand that fear is a big motivator for some of the positions we hold, I think we can have a lot more grace and why people have landed in the places they have. But yeah, any, I would say the things that require me to be like, this is like a no, I'm not changing my mind on this is if somebody is treated as less than in some way, then I'm yeah. like, that's not okay. Mm-hmm. Another thing that you talked about in, and we've touched on it briefly, is you talked yeah. about uh, the idea of building walls Mm-hmm. as well. And, you know, you kind of touched on that with, with echo chambers and, you know, yes. associating with people who are agreeing with us as well. And you talk about, which I had never thought of it this way, but you talk about how there's a cost that comes mm-hmm. when you build walls. Can yeah. you just talk about kind of what the cost is for building yeah. walls or surrounding ourselves with people who only think like us? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. In the book, I talk about this, this trip my husband and I took to Northern Ireland and we went there and we I did not know a lot about the history there, but um, 
Northern Ireland in the 1960s through 1990s kind of went through this period where they were trying to um, determine their constitutional status. Would they stay part of the United Kingdom or become part of the Republic of Ireland? In this 30-year period they called the Troubles, um, there is just a lot of political unrest and violence. And at the start of it, in 1969, the government built what they called these peace walls. And they were literal walls in the city of Belfast and surrounding neighborhoods that were separating different neighborhoods that thought differently from each other, Keep putting a wall up to keep them from engaging in hopes that it would keep the violence from happening. Well, the troubles lasted for 30 years after the first peace wall was built. So it didn't work. But I think the problem that, the, that happens because of that was these walls were were built in the hopes that there would be less violence. But what ultimately happened is it dehumanized the people on the other side because they were never forced to engage with anybody that thought differently than them. And they could allow themselves to make people on the other side as less human or less than or other in a way that was never kept in check because they never had actual relationships with them. And so I think the same thing, we're in danger of the same thing happening to us. You know, there was that study that came out, um, I think it was last year, 2019, that talked about um, the importance of eye contact with other people and that literally making eye contact with somebody triggers the social part in our brain that allows us to um, feel more empathy towards somebody. And so when we build these literal or metaphysical walls and we're, we're not allowing ourselves to make literal eye contact with somebody, then we're allowed to, th- we're able to think of that person in a less humane way. And that's what's going to cause us to say things about people that's hurtful and harmful, to treat them in a way that's hurtful and harmful, to see them in a way that, um, ends up allowing us to, uh, excuse a lot of bad behavior and, and to think that God agrees with us because we're, we're the right ones we're on the right side. So I think it's that dehumanizing effect the walls allow us to to create. And again, that's when you are listening and reading people that you don't agree with, following people on social media, then you're saying, okay, there's another way to see this. This I'm going to break down a metaphysical wall. I'm going to keep a literal wall from being built between the actual relationships I have with people, look them in the eye and have a conversation that's going to allow me to empathize rather than criticize or judge or dehumanize in the process. The other thing that you talk about towards the end of the book is you talk about certainty mm-hmm. as well and yeah. being more open-handed, uh, especially whenever it comes to wonder. Yes. What, I, I would just love love for you to talk about that dynamic and um, uh, kind of maybe elaborate on the previous question too, is what does, certain, what does certainty cost us? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that there's a big, I think the biggest cost is a faith issue um, when it comes to certainty. I think when we land so certain on certain, on different positions, um, we put God in a box. And I think ultimately that's hurting us and not just the person that's on the other side of us. Um, you know, I keep thinking when I think I have God figured out, I'm like, I don't, that's not a God I actually want to follow. (laughs) If he's exactly like me, that's a problem (laughs) for for a lot of reasons. Um, so yeah, I think certainty costs us. Um, I think it hurts us. I think it, ultimately hurts what's the kingdom of God, right? If we're unable to live with people who are different from us, that's an inability to live in God's kingdom ultimately. And so when we are certain that God thinks like us or certain that the positions we hold are exactly what God would think, we are shutting off other people's experience of God and we're shutting off um, the image of God in them. And so ultimately learning to lean into these relationships and conversations where people think differently than us is leaning into an understanding of God that we haven't had yet. So I think it's very arrogant of us to think that our experience in our, you know, from the United States as a white middle-class woman for me is to, it's very arrogant to think I have cornered the market on God right? Like that would just be really foolish to think that. And so anytime we're doing that, we are shrinking God down. We are putting him in a box that he does not operate in and shouldn't operate in and and shrinking, not just our own experience of him, but the way that he is perceived to be from people around us. So the certainty is costing not just our our own faith. It's costing the faith of people around us who are saying who are seeing us claim Jesus 
and saying, I don't know if I really want to be a part of that. That's what that looks like. So leaning into wonder is really saying, God is so much bigger than I am. He's bigger than the box I could fit him in. Um, there's a way of experiencing that I could never know because of where I was raised, um, what I do for a living, where I live now. And so I want to be as curious as possible to somebody else's experience because that makes me humble, but it also makes God bigger. And anything that makes God bigger is probably a better move than shrinking them down. Yeah. And I I feel like you illustrate it so well in the book by sharing Erin's story mm-hmm. of her baptism. Yes. Would, would you be able to just, just share that story for us yeah. and kind of yeah, just share if you could just share the story, yeah. that'd be awesome. Yeah. So Aaron was a is a friend of ours, still a friend of ours. Um, my husband's a a pastor at a church, and Aaron got baptized several years ago now. I mean, maybe almost 10 years ago. Um, and she did my husband baptized her. Um, and in her uh baptism video, she talked about how she um was an alcoholic and she was just a couple of years, maybe less than a year into sobriety when she got baptized. But the reason that she had become an alcoholic is she'd been raised going to church and hearing about how God hated gay people. And um, she realized that she was gay. And so she just kind of uh, deal with the pain and the hurt that that experience had started drinking at a very young age. Um, and then eventually came out uh, to her family and friends, and it just was kind of a downward spiral. Um, and so she was baptized, and she was the first person at our church to be baptized who had explicitly stated um, that she was gay. And we went to a, a volunteer meeting um, a couple weeks afterward that was with different leaders in the church, and her baptism came up. And the thing that people kept talking about was, was she still gay? Could she still, could she be a Christian and be gay? And there was so much focus on her sexuality. And then one of our um, friends on staff said, I think we're kind of missing the point, right? Like Aaron, the, the point is that Aaron is sober. And that she her she came to faith and she decided, I don't want to live as an addict anymore. I don't want to live as a slave to alcohol and really celebrating that. And, and who are we to determine how her faith story should go? And the thing I just loved about that story was, you know, keeping up with Erin, watching every year as she posts about her sobriety birthday and, and what God has done in her life as a result, but really saying, um, we are we have a tendency to pick the plot line we think people should follow when it comes to their own faith journey and we think that we should be able to tell the holy spirit this is what you should work on first it's really important that you kick this habit before you address this and that is just way out of our pay grade and and a and a real problem i again i think it causes us to shrink god down i think that there was such a narrow focus of the beauty in Aaron's story, when we only focused on the one thing we thought should be different, that we missed so much potential there, that she is able to live in healthy relationships now that that she has not touched alcohol since then, that she is involved in helping other people come to sobriety and what she does for them. And I love seeing that. I don't want to miss the Holy Spirit because it because the Spirit worked in a way that I didn't expect. And if it didn't work in a way that I expected, then it couldn't be valid. And I feel like that's what we're saying. When we hold on to certainty, we're saying, you, if you don't work this way, then it's not the right way. And again, it's putting God in a box. And so Erin has just, her story has stuck with me. Um, her friendship, her example has just been um, such a testimony to me that um, God is bigger than any of our plans. And if we try to force him in a box, we're going to miss him. And that's, yeah. that hurts us and we lose in that scenario. Yeah. That's such an amazing story. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, what on, and, I, and we all struggle with this from time yeah. to time, but on your best days, what helps you remain open-handed to what God wants to do or even just open-minded as well? Yeah. Um, I think I need to be asking myself on a regular basis um, what Jesus is like when it comes to who am I following? Have I conformed him to my image or am I being conformed into his? And so on my best days, I'm asking the question, um, what is Jesus like? And if my answer doesn't make me a little uncomfortable, then chances are I'm not following him, but following myself. And just knowing that discomfort is not the enemy. 
and conflict is not the enemy and disagreement is not the enemy. Um, being a peacekeeper is a problem. Being a peacemaker is something to aim for. And being a peacemaker means being able to live and lean into the tension we feel. Um, so on my best days, it's remembering that following Jesus should make me uncomfortable making peace with people should make me uncomfortable. And if I don't feel a little bit of angst internally over what Jesus is like and what he's asking me to do, then I've probably um, started following a version of myself somewhere along the way. Mm-hmm. A couple other questions I want to ask you uh, that I love ask, love yeah. asking people is, who who are some of your favorite people to learn from? Yeah, Um, I love learning from people who have no faith, um, backgrounds at all. Um, I like listening to Sam Harris. He's a pretty outspoken atheist, (laughs) um, but super thoughtful. Anybody who's thoughtful, I don't care if you agree with me or not. If you are thoughtful, I really would like to lean in. And there is, um, so there is this list of this letter that came out in Harper's magazine several months, a couple months ago now that, um, had a whole bunch of, intellectuals, writers, um, leaders that kind of signed this, this letter that was saying we are pro open dialogue and against kind of cancel culture, um, which I'm a huge fan of. And the people that signed this, this letter, I mean, they were all over the spectrum in terms of politics and faith. And I'm like, these are the people I'm leaning into the people that are like, Hey, I'm fine if you have an opinion, but like we need to be able to have a dialogue about it. So, um, David Brooks was one of the people on there that I really love. He's a columnist. Um, Jonathan Haidt is a is a writer. He wrote um, a book I absolutely adored called The Righteous Mind, on just kind of the psychology behind our differing views politically and religiously. That was fantastic. So I love listening to any kind of podcast that he's on. Um, more entertaining, but Malcolm Gladwell, I love listening to him. He's always challenging me in the way he tells stories and these little kind of um, nuggets that he tucks in to his podcasts and books. Um, but anybody that just causes me to think um, and isn't, I'm just not listening to going like, yeah, I already thought that. That was great. Like you're just reinforcing everything I already thought. I want to mm-hmm. listen to somebody who's like, I've never thought about it that way before. I don't think I agree with it, but I want to know why I don't agree with it. I want to figure out why I think the way I do. What's the emotional response I'm having to what you're saying? Yeah. What, what's a book that's done that for you in the last year that's changed yeah. how you've thought? Um, so I read this book um, probably at the start of COVID called The Great Emergence, and it was by Phyllis Tickle. And um, this is, you know, more the faith lane, but she wrote this book, I think it was in 2012 and then she passed away in 2016, but she was like this church scholar. Um, But she wrote about how every 500 years, the church goes through this kind of, well, she called it like a a rummage sale. It's like every 500 years, you kind of go through the church changes and decides what it's going to keep and what it's going to throw out. And she walks through different periods in history. Obviously our last one was the great reformation in the 1500s, but that she talked in this book, which just blew my mind about how obviously we are coming up on another time of change. It's been 500 years. And in this footnote, she said, it generally happens around a pandemic. (laughs) And she wrote this in 2012, obviously before any of this happened. And I just remember thinking it was the timing of reading this book and then watching what was kind of happening culturally and spiritually um, and within the church environment and thinking, oh my gosh, COVID has really taught us or is prompting us to pivot church in a lot of ways. And I think in a really good way, it's forcing our hands, but I've just thought the book was so good at asking, at forcing us to ask questions um, that I think we should have probably been asking earlier, but COVID forced us to ask now. And so I think it just, um, anytime we can get a larger view of church history or history in general, that kind of gives us a proper perspective of where we fall and and where we're headed. um, I think that's really helpful. So that book just blew my mind. Yeah. If you could pass on uh, a lesson or lessons that you've learned in the last year to everybody, what would they be? Yes. That is a great question. Um, I would say my, the thing I've learned in watching, um, you know, my brother and my sister and their political involvement, my dad, he continues to be very involved. um, is just to remember that people are more than their political positions 
-hmm. and that even the people who identify themselves as politicians um, or identify as a Republican or a Democrat, that's not the sole thing that um, defines them. And just to remember that all of us are representatives of God's image, um, that there is a facet of God in somebody that we would never know unless we took the time to get to know them. And so just remembering that um, there's just more, there's more to the story than what we see on a screen. There's more to the story than the soundbite we hear, um, you know, whether it's the politician or the person on the other side of the Thanksgiving table, there's more to the story. Yeah. Well, Sarah, I know people are going to want to pick up your book, The Space Between Us, and continue to, to learn and follow you. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? Amazon and barnesandnoble.com would probably be the best place to go. But yeah, Amazon's probably the easiest. So you can head over there and, and pick it up. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And just yes. thank you for thank you for doing the work of creating this resource. It is so yeah. needed. And just oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks, Caleb. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for being on the Learner's Corner podcast today. And be sure to pick up uh, her book. This book that I'm... Uh, that we talked about, The Space Between Us, is one of my favorite books that I've read this year. And thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the podcast as well. The best way to make sure that you don't miss a single episode is by subscribing to whatever podcast player you're using, whether that be Spotify or Overcast or Apple Podcast or Google, uh, whatever it might be, just hit that subscribe button. And just thank you so much again for listening to today's episode of the podcast. Say Massey, thank you so much for creating the music for this episode as well, and really just for the podcast in general. And if you have something that you're currently learning about, whether it be a book or a podcast or a person that you're learning from, I would love to hear from you of some of the things that you're learning about, some of the things that are just really challenging you and helping you uh, become a better uh, woman or a better man as well. And so thank you so much. Oh, and uh, the best way that you could do that is by reaching out to me on via Instagram. My handle is at Caleb J. Mason. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Learner's Corner Podcast. Until next time, keep learning and keep growing.